Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 112. Now this is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masu and I'm really glad you could join us. With me today is my co-host on the show, The Boots. Musa Kalenga, how are you doing, bro? I'm good, thank you. The boots, where does that come from now? I was looking for something more creative than what I normally say. Like, I love it. Well, uh, yeah, it's me, the boots. Uh, yeah, I went all the way Afrikaans. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> good to be back and great to be with you guys and hoping we're going to have a fantastic show. Lots to chat about, right? Always, always. So listen, we have a special guest in the building. Oh, man. Simon, the man, Dingle. The man's better than boots. <laughs> Simon the Boot Dingle. Well, no, I had to look for something. Yeah, okay, I'll take it. <laughs> Fintech head of note, Bitcoin. I don't think enthusiast covers it. I think you, uh, to be fair, you're a cryptocurrency proponent, I think it's fair to say. Um, you have an incredible wealth of knowledge around all matters to do with mobile money, Fintech in general, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency in general. And we're so glad to have you here because it is a super interesting time for this cryptocurrency thing um, and it's got some interesting implications for the African continent dude thank you so much for joining us yeah it's good to be uh, it's, uh, I mean I've just been doing it for uh, for longer than most I guess I started working with Bitcoin in 2011 um, we're in the midst of a hype now, so now everybody's an expert, right? Now you can go to McKinsey or Bain and ask for a blockchain expert, and they'll have somebody who just got their MBA but has a really nice slide deck. Um. <laughs> so, okay, so as long as you don't ask me anything. <laughs> no, but my point is I was doing this before. It was cool. <laughs> so what do you make of some of the expertise that's floating about? Should we be wary? What do you think? Yeah, well, don't speak to KPMG. <laughs> oh, that was such a low blow. If you're, if you're listening anywhere else in the world uh, that's not South Africa and have no idea what that is referencing, just Google KPMG. Would you say? Just Google KPMG. <laughs> actually, just Google KPMG. Maybe South Africa. Heck, just KPMG should do it, actually. So, yeah, it's rough. But, yeah, but we, we have you here. Yeah, I mean, my... my I guess to answer your question is uh, whenever there's a trend or there's hype, uh, you know, a favorite buzzword, the experts kind of call out of the cracks. It was the same with uh, pick anything, open source, uh, service orientated architecture in the early days of the mobile industry. You know, that's that's where the sucking sounds are. So that's where the experts in inverted commas will be. And now it's blockchain, so everybody's a blockchain expert. Well, we have a real one in the building, folks. We, 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 weren't, we weren't going for any... <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, listen. We, we, we will accept no... What's the word? Accept no... Uh, we are accepting no substitutes here on the, the African Tech Roundup. But I, I think part of my point is that there, is no, there are no experts. It's a nascent industry. We're still all learning. It's an experiment. You're being modest, but I understand what you mean. It's a, a real expert knows what they don't know, right? And... Uh, you know, Richard Feynman said, if, if you want to know whether or not somebody understands uh, quantum mechanics, if they tell you they do, they don't, right? And it really is the same in, in, in blockchain where we're bringing together uh, cryptography. So obviously cryptographers know what they're talking about, um, economists, computer scientists. But really, when you put those three things together, you've got a new field that anybody who's claiming to be an expert in is de facto lying because we're still figuring it out. That is especially true with regards to this particular trend on the African continent, where I feel some of the best possible use cases for cryptocurrency currently exist, and yet um, we are not part of the conversation, at least as, as much as I feel we could be or should be. And, and yeah, and this is really why we have Simon here on the show. Cannot wait to dive into some of the, the headlines that caught our attention over the last couple of weeks or so, but then also to just jump into the Bitcoin craze that is just taking the world by storm, the cryptocurrency wave that we all on some level I feel like should be should be surfing all that and more coming up after this now this African Tech Roundup is brought to you by well actually this is the part where I tell you to look out for next week's sponsor because we have some incredible news uh, about uh, what we'll be doing next as a platform some interesting uh, product innovations that we'll be trialing very soon uh, to package the value that we've we've come to identify and and be known for here on this podcast in some other really great ways that 
hopefully we'll have some commercial viability linked to them uh and so yeah this is the part where i just enthuse you with what's coming next and look out for the next podcast where i'll be telling you all about it we've been uh in uh, jam lab jam lab of course being a a media accelerator program uh that is being hosted by wits university in partnership with ryerson university in canada and we've been a part of it with for at least a couple of months now the team and i working really really hard to to think about all the reasons we exist to challenge the notions that, that we've we've held uh, around why we exist and how we ought to assert ourselves and bring you value every week without fail and to think about how we can do so sustainably going forward this space is all about you come next episode stick around with all that being said Let's kick things off with some startup news. So let's start with two fairly high-profile startups that have announced that they'll be shutting down, African startups, of course. The first one being the video-on-demand service AfroStream, which is closing in France, the UK, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and at least 24 African countries. Um, it, it was founded by the Cameroonian Tonye Bakang. In the, in the time the, the startup was going, he managed to raise $4 million. But to put this figure into context, I mean, Netflix spent... Uh, something like 33 million euro in the year it launched in France, you know. So, um, so in as much as it's a hang of a lot of money, uh, in context, it appears he's done the best he could possibly do. And in this past August, apparently, according to an open letter he put out on, on OK Africa, I think it's recommended reading for anybody who who wants to understand what it's like in the trenches. Um, he admitted that in August he couldn't pay people and he's since come out saying, listen, we're going to have to shut doors because our investors aren't willing to, to go further with us. The reason I bring this up, guys, is I know for a fact the two of you have, uh, have had the <laughs> unfortunate privilege of having businesses fail. And, um, you know, so there's Bakang to think of, uh, Tonya Bakang, but there's also... Uh, the, the, the founders of Go My Way, the ride-sharing service in Nigeria, which uh, announced this past week that they'll be uh, shutting down um, CEO Damilola Teedi, uh, announcing that basically, I guess we can't keep, they can't keep up with Taxify and Uber. No surprises there. Very expensive to, to sort of fuel growth in that space. They just can't do it, um, and they're saying goodbye. What do you think these two individuals, um, Damilola Teedi, and um, Tonya Bakang are feeling right now. What do you think, Musa? Yeah, it's tough. I think um, you know the emotions that you go through as a as a startup founder or a business or an entrepreneur. Um, uh, they're quite vast, but I think the most immediate feeling would probably be one of of extreme disappointment, almost bordering on shame. I think in the context of Africa, it's just unfortunate the way we treat these kind of things. But um, you know, to have gone to the extent where you've raised money, to have gone to the extent where you've created a value proposition, to have gone to the extent where you've got people to buy into it, and then for you to have to admit kind of that it's not working. Investors, like in the case of you know Tanya, like four million votes of confidence. Absolutely. Those are, those are not small numbers. But uh, admitting kind of failure, I think for them, probably the, the failure started before they actually made the announcement. And I think that was probably the most painful period. After you make the announcement, I think it's just dealing with repercussions. But leading up to that, it's probably feelings of disillusionment. I remember my first business. Um, you kind of know the, the, the end is near. And because it's your baby and you want to make it work, you want to fight and you want to make everything um, work out. But there are some you know pretty kind of obvious telltale signs that uh, most businesses fail by. And there's generally one big thing and there's other small supporting things that are that are going to fail at, at its core. Um, and I think for me, when I look at those two stories, the, the big issue is going to be for them um, how they bounce back because as I said our ecosystem is not one that is favorable of failure and whether they label this as something that is going to be ultimately um, a, 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 a black mark on their record or whether people are going to look at it and go, you've got some great learnings. Let's, uh, let's, let's start up and do something. And I hope the latter uh, for them. But uh, the period itself, as I said, is super emotional. I also felt very bad because of the team that you've built. Um, you essentially creating a dream for people to to vest themselves in and are you telling them the dream is no longer there or the dream has been deferred or whatever it may be that is i mean the human element for me was uh was really kind of where it hit home but um as i said dream deferred and you live to fight another day and i just hope that's the attitude that they have i don't remember you writing any sort of open letters simon is it, is it because it's not your style or um what do you make of that culture this culture of okay so not only am I telling you we're shutting down because I have to, obviously, as an obligation to you, as a, as a you know, to my staff or to to my customers, etc. But I mean, there's no obligation, as you know, to sort of tell everybody 
you know, show us the bodies, as it were, you know? So what do you make of that approach to shutting down? Do you think it's a clever sort of springboard to the next thing? Is it really uh, an important cathartic process? And if so, like, how come you've never done it? Or maybe you have. I think all of the above. Uh, you know, I, I my business failures, uh, nobody would care about. So. <laughs> Why tell anyone? <laughs> nobody even knew we existed. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate in that the most recent businesses I've been involved in for the last five or six years have certainly experienced failure, but as a business are still around. So, But I, I like this era of hyper-transparency. You know, I like, is it Paul Gascoigne, the CEO of uh, uh, Buffer? Yep, that's him. Yeah, I, you know, I like that kind of approach to publishing your financials online, sharing your knowledge, um, sharing your salary calculations, talking about how you approach things like maternity or paternity leave, um, and when things don't work, uh, helping other founders learn from your mistakes, um, telling your shareholders exactly what happened. You know, it, really, that's the antithesis of the corporate culture we all hate. Corporate cultures are about secrecy. They're about po politics. They're about games. And I like that we're now dealing with a generation of startups that are sticking a finger in the air to that culture and going, we're going to be transparent and open and you can laugh at us. Um, but this is how we, this is how we play now. Um, so I think I, you know, I, res I respect the approach. I, I like the, the approach to sharing. I don't think it's something you have to do, but, uh, but yeah, and and again, uh, we as an entrepreneur, you're kind of in a support group with every other entrepreneur out there. The most important thing you need as an entrepreneur is 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 that support because it is lonely, um, because you do have to weather a lot of the storm yourself, um, and because your job predominantly is HR. You start a company because you have a dream or an idea that you want to bring to to the market. You end up managing people for a living, <laughs> and 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 so you you know you're like a parent, uh, and that comes with all the stresses that being a parent comes with. You you feel responsible for other people's financial well being for the fact that you know they're paying for their kids to go to school for, and it's uh, it's a lot to take on. So I think the more we share and the more we we are there for each other as entrepreneurs, the better. Yeah, definite. Uh, again, I cannot recommend enough uh, uh, Tonya's uh, open letter. Uh, it's, it's published on OK Africa. Just Google AfroStream OK Africa. You'll find the letter immediately. See what you can learn because he's really not held anything back in terms of letting us know what his mindset was and all really the biggest uh, business lessons he's learned from the demise of his business. And and shout out to uh, Dami Lola and her team as well, because um, I know they've they confided in Techabal initially, and we've been sort of half promised by the team at Techabal that there might be an interview on its way or, you know, a full confessional on its way. I certainly hope there will be, because I'm sure there's a lot to learn in terms of like what to do and what not to do in terms of trying to take on ride sharing uh, in Nigeria. Uh, and yeah, shout out to you, Africa, for becoming the place where these people can safely fail because it's part of the game. Let's move on to the next, folks. We talk publishers and media companies that have been hijacking their audiences, CPUs to mine cryptocurrency. My word, as if there aren't enough people we can't trust out there. As it turns out, we need to add the likes of Meme Burn to the list and possibly CBS's Showtime to that list. A meme boom, of course, being the WPP-owned PR journalism platform. I think they're owned by WPP. They're certainly a PR journalism platform. They probably won't like that I said that, but they are. And um, as it happens, they've had, I don't fully understand this, but they've had code embedded on their site that turns their audiences or visitors to their site into basically, what, hijacks their CPU uh, processing power to mine Bitcoin? You have to explain this for us, Simon. What the heck is going on? Of course, can I just disclaimer? Memeburn claims they had nothing to do with this. They weren't even aware it was going on. Uh, Showtime, I think something similar. Um, were they hijacked? Or is everyone quietly doing this and we just don't know? So maybe let's first start by explaining what happened here. Um, there's a piece of software. I don't know which was used by Memeburn, but it was probably CoinHive. Um, yes, they said it was CoinHive. So CoinHive is actually a really good idea. What these guys have done is they've written software that you can plug into your website um, and you can make money from people visiting your website by using their spare processing power to mine Monero. And in the case of CoinHive, it's not Bitcoin. Ah. So the Monero cryptocurrency, uh, which is an interesting story in and of itself. 
Um, but the idea is that instead of serving ads, this is a way for content creators to make money. So while somebody's reading your article on your website, in the background, the, the site is is harvesting some Monero. Um, we won't get into the technicalities of mining, but I think you get the gist of it. Um, so that's actually a really good idea. But of course, it's something you should tell your site visitors you're doing. So you should have a pop-up going, hey, this is how we monetize our site. You know, we're going to be using resources of your computer while you're visiting. Are you okay with that? You know, a little bit like uh, European Union requires you to tell people you use cookies on your website. <laughs> I mean, it's obvious when you're serving ads, hopefully. Um, but uh, so so this, this script is, is kind of clever as an alternative way to monetize websites. I don't know how much money you'd realistically make. I was going to ask, so how much, how many visitors do you need to, to make any sort yeah. of reasonable money off this? I mean, I don't know as much about Monero mining as I do about sort of Bitcoin or Ethereum mining, but my guess would be that you'd have to have millions of users and they'd have to be on the site for quite a lot, a lot of time uh, for you to make money. That's why it might make sense for Showtime. Um, is because you're watching TV shows. If you're sitting down in front of a Netflix or a Showtime, you're watching like eight hours of TV on a Saturday, you know, maybe there's enough in, in, in millions of people doing that for them to make some money. Anyway, you know, regardless of that, it'll be figured out in time. I like it more than advertising. Like, I hate advertising. But advertising is not going to sap your CPU's processing power. Isn't that the thing? No, they're just going to make you feel inadequate and, and waste your money on stupid shit you don't need. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if we can swear on <laughs> You can swear on the show. <laughs> no, advertising is evil, right? There's no good form of it. But that's, a, that's like a philosoph philosophical discussion I don't want to get into. Um, it's, the point is coin... Rabbit hole averted. <laughs> Coinhive is a good idea. But you have to do it ethically. You have to tell people you're doing it. So the Pirate Bay tested it out. You know, the Pirate Bay obviously has to get creative about how it makes revenue. Um, but for Meme Burn and Showtime to say that they didn't know this was happening, I think is um, disingenuous. Um, it's possible that a hacker got in there and installed CoinHive and set a Monero address to receive the funds themselves. Could it be like a, an employee in, in the organization who is quietly doing this and, yeah. and like management didn't know? Look, I don't want to accuse people of things, but my suspicion is that what happened is um, these companies heard about this uh, software as an alternative to making money from ads. They're all under a lot of pressure. As we know, we're all online content creators. We know how hard it is out there to find advertisers and to, and to make money and pay your staff. I think they heard about this. They thought, ah, oh, this is an interesting idea. Let's test it out. And they got caught testing it out. Um, but, but, but that's my, you know, that's a hypothesis. I don't know if that's really what happened. Well, me and Berm came out saying, nah, totally like didn't know anything about it. We're turning the site off for a while. I don't know how long that happened, uh, but they literally hit, hit social media with on like a full on, we didn't know this was happening. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's not trivial to install this software. You know, you, you have to factor it into your site's code. So that makes me doubt that it was a hacker who did it. It would have had to have been somebody at Memeburn or Showtime. Now, you don't give the interns access to your site code, right? This doesn't happen without somebody fairly senior and deploying the code and knowing that this... I, unless, you're, unless you're just, you know, running a tow truck company, which I know Memeburn and Showtime aren't, you know, these are, these are good companies. So last thought on it is I, I hate to be the skeptic and the cynic. Like I, one of my favorite sayings is easy is making fun of stuff, hard is making stuff. <laughs> it's so easy to just shit talk on a business about what you think happened when you have no idea so that's my suspicion i hope they can prove me wrong if you take a zoom out on this like interesting ecosystem that is coming up right if you think about kind of an illicit ecosystem around fake news fueling something that like coin hive fueling the bit it's a i think there's like an underlying um kind of financial ecosystem that's starting to be created that's self-fulfilling but at the same time is completely unregulated um and if you could i mean i don't want to put any ideas into anybody's head but if you use fake news to generate enough eyeballs you can essentially mine it and be able to make money from bit currency right and so i mean you're referencing a story we talked about some weeks ago. A Zimbabwean journalist, um, this was covered by the Mail and Guardian. A Zimbabwean journalist uh, based in Zimbabwe actually has deployed, well, has, has published uh, several fake news sites, which he uses to fund his real journalism in, in more, you know, respectable publications. And to the point where his wife, as, you know, as so the interview goes, his wife 
reckons he must just dump the the real journalism altogether it's unsafe it's 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 it's, you know and all that kind of thing and he no doubt on probably in that context has is way ahead of all these other guys because he probably as part of his monetization campaign probably is already taking advantage of coin hive you know that kind of thing and to think should we all get used to this as as part of the future because indirectly if you're using my cpu capacity Really, I'm funding your publication on some level, indirectly. Do you know what I'm saying? In, in terms of like the actual machinery of how you monetize. If that's in fact where it's all going, you're making sure I pay to consume. Is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, if you can control a flow of eyeballs, there's various ways for you to make money with advertising, with affiliate links. Um, this is just another option now, I guess. Um, I I think it's I think it's pretty smart actually, but I do think you need to disclose to your site visitors that you're doing it. I don't want to get into discussion about fake news because that's like you know. a whole other thing, and you don't want to compromise your back business. I'm, yeah. I'm joking, but but I will say that we're moving into like a, an interesting new era of monetizing content, and that includes things like the basic attention token, which I'm sure you guys have spoken about before. Uh, actually, we haven't. So uh, you know, there's a there's an organization that's working on. Uh, they've got software called Brave, which is a browser based on Chrome. Um, and they recently ICO'd with a token called uh, the BAT, Basic Attention Token. And the idea is that, um, you know, you could have a wallet with these tokens in your browser, for example, and you could be watching a video on a video streaming site, and in the background, your browser could be paying for you to uh, consume that content. So, you know, it's not that people don't want to pay for content. When you tell your podcast listeners that you need donations, they go, oh, yeah, you know, I should donate. But they forget about it. And there's that friction. If they're on your website listening to the podcast and there's a donate button, they know that donate button's going to take them away to PayPal or it's going to run a script that's going to ask for their credit card and it's going to take them away from the content. And I think that's part of the challenge we've always had as content creators is just removing the friction from people paying to engage with our content now we have ways for them to do it without thinking about it they can set it and forget it they can go okay i'm willing to pay 20 cents for every youtube video i watch and it'll happen in the background you know they don't have to think about it or they can just hit a button on your website that doesn't take them away from the content and some basic attention tokens will flow in the background um and coin hive is another option like i said i don't think that i you know fundamentally you're probably not going to make a lot of money from it yet I just don't think the efficiencies are there. Um, but it's a great idea if it's done properly. Also, if we know about it, right? So let's talk some South African news now. Um, in the cu- last couple of weeks, the broadband fiber company, Vumatel, they're the company uh, currently uh, ensuring that every uh, affluent suburb in South Africa, or at least in major metros, it, <laughs> has a, a broadband uh, fiber connection or access to one at least, uh, including my home. And so... Uh, Vumatel have announced an aggressive plan to deliver service to townships. Uh, That actually captured some headlines in the last couple of weeks. And now rumor has it they might be acquired by Dark Fiber Africa. Uh, Well, that's word on the street. But um, interesting move here. Um, They're not going to be digging trenches like they they they've basically just dug up the northern suburbs of johannesburg uh in the most brutal fashion but they will not be doing that in the townships they will be stringing the fiber on on poles and and they're promising you know pretty dope speeds to to people in the townships the numbers though the numbers i've spoken to people offline about this not people from vumatel who who figure this is a gimmick on some level because you know the numbers don't seem to add up. What, what do you guys think? When you say with numbers from the in terms of what they're charging consumers or the numbers in terms of their business model? So what they plan to charge consumers, which is relatively, you know, remarkably lower than not they, they're currently charging most of us in the suburbs. Um, so there's that. And then the, the cost of basically investing in this infrastructure, the, the complexity of actually rolling out this infrastructure in townships, we know all the, the likelihood that that infrastructure is relatively perhaps less safe above ground than it is underground and, and how long it will actually take and the num- the volume is required to make the model work you know so there are people who are skeptical about it then there's people like me who feel that it's it's quite telling that let's get the rich folks first which i guess is capitalism at its, per- at its best uh and and then let's see what happens for you know the vast majority of other people who probably need the internet more than anyone else but um is this encouraging how positive or how how excited should we be do you think simon I think we should always be excited about, um, you know, 
connectivity spreading out to parts of the world that need it most. Um, as much as the internet has revolutionized the way we live, less than half the world's population are online. So any any initiative that, that looks to spread internet access gets my vote. And again, to my point earlier, like it's so easy to be cynical. Like people at Vumatel, I'm guessing, have sat around and actually modeled this. Smart people. Smart people deliberated about the numbers. And now, like, some journalist's going to go, oh, it doesn't add up. Well, it's not some journalists. I've been speaking to their competitors, to be fair, who are probably really upset that they didn't come to the table with this idea first. My, my point is it's, it's easy to shit talk anything, right? It's easy to be cynical. It's, it's difficult to do this kind of project. So I respect their ambition. I, I hope they're successful. I suspect in the long term, wireless communications are going to supersede this kind of fixed uh, line infrastructure. So when you say wireless, do you think it'll be led by, like, the mobile telcos or, or what do you think? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm excited by things like SpaceX rolling out their pizza box, uh, low orbit satellite um, infrastructure and just beaming it down from satellites. I was skeptical when I first heard about SpaceX doing this. But when you hear about 35 millisecond ping times and 100 megabit per second through a satellite, that's phenomenal. Plus, you get to beam it over the head of the regulators, so to speak. So that can be handy, too. So MTN, Vodacom, Safaricom, etc. Be very afraid, maybe. Um, but look, let's talk about fiber some more. This time, West Africa in Liquid Telecom's view, because according to their chief business development officer, uh, Willem Marais, you know, West Africa is definitely in their sights. I imagine they mean Nigeria. This would be interesting <laughs> to me because, uh, I mean, you know, Liquid Telecom being a, a, an Econet subsidiary, there is a well-documented history of of uh, Econet founder uh, Str- Strive Masiwa's uh, exploits or indeed frustrated exploits uh, in in Nigeria, um, being a big part of of, of basically jumpstarting their mobile telco uh, scene over there. Wouldn't it be interesting for him to ride into town on on like a a, a really 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 solid um, fiber broadband play. I think that would be amazing. I mean, the race is on, obviously, to conquer Africa. Um, and Strive has been very deliberate in the last couple of years around what he's been doing, especially around his infrastructure place. Um, I do think Nigeria is a very tough place to just ride in on a horse and take everything um, over. And as you said, his past experiences uh, speak to that. But um, I think absolutely, from a from a from an economic perspective, it makes sense. From the learnings that they've managed to get in the Southern African region, it makes sense. Um, the proof will be in the pudding. Um, but I, I hope it's gonna. I hope it's gonna work i mean i really wish him the best i do think there'll be a number of other things that he'll have to kind of deal with regarding uh, culture regarding assimilation to that space adoption etc etc but once again they're probably really smart people that are thinking about these things um but i, I wish him the best i think he's going to do well and yet another uh, econet subsidiary quesa tv finally uh letting us all know that they will in fact be taking on dstv in south africa it's been you know up in the air will they will they not uh, it's, it's a highly contested space dstv seems to have it on lock um as it happens they will they're going to market with a, a device called quesa play it's apparently been made in, in partnership with roku and unique to the market so far is the fact that this device will allow you to curate your offering pick and choose which uh, networks you want and pay for those as opposed to sort of being locked into a, a, a whole sort of cable offering a la DSTV. Do they have any hope of, of, of uh, do you guys think, of, uh, <laughs> of basically um, overtaking DSTV's advantage in this particular market? I, I really don't know. I mean, if they can bundle the online services that people want like Netflix and Showmax, etc., which, of course, multi-choice would benefit from too, along with some local content, maybe. Yeah, I know they. I know they. They're commissioning quite a bit of stuff. But interestingly, the first three months subscribers are being promised three months free Netflix when they sign up now. So I think that's probably where they're heading. They're looking to create a marquee um, or pick and choose sort of uh, menu of like the best possible stuff from all over the world. I mean, I don't know, this This isn't an industry that I have hands-on experience with, but, you know, from from my kind of armchair view of it, it's it's. I certainly wouldn't want to be in the set-top box game, you know? Um, people are going to be playing Netflix subscriptions, they're going to be paying Showmax subscriptions, they don't need um, your help to do that necessarily. Most smart TVs now, if you buy, you know, a Samsung or an LG, it already has those apps installed anyway. You're going to be paying 100 bucks to each of those content silos uh yeah i just i don't see where the margin is for the set top box provider 
Uh, obviously, there's the connectivity provided, but it doesn't seem like a fun game to play to me. I mean, I would have said the same thing. I mean, I would have, if you're going to take on DSTV, why would you take them on in, the, in doing the same thing they've pretty much done? Yes, you're liberating content, you're providing a little more flexibility, but ultimately, all of it revolves around a, a physical device, which is not where the world is going, uh, number one. Number two, I think DSTV are in the rights business. You know, a big part of why they have the advantage they have is because of things that relate back to, to, to rights and licenses from that perspective. And those are not cheap things to acquire. Um, and in order, for, in order for you to have rights to be able to broadcast things like live sports, etc etc you actually create a little bit of a monopoly for yourself so there needs to be a strategy around that and i know quest has been playing around with uh, rights with the nba and other things around in the ecosystem espn i think correct so so i know they're thinking about it but th- you know that's a big part of why dstv is dstv and the second thing as i said i share the same sentiments um if you're going to compete with dstv why why bring out a set-top box if the world is not going that way per se yeah and i suppose this comes in the wake of dstv of course announcing that they'll be marrying well, DSTV, uh, DSTV with with Showmax, which again, there seems to be a consolidation on the go here, and maybe Quest is just trying to get ahead of it. I've always said on the show that Quest has, I suppose, in terms of like the bag of tricks, being part of the Econet Group and and in sort of the Africa wide footprint and the integration, perhaps consolidation opportunities across the continent in that regard. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Is this is this them just sort of announcing to the market they're here, or is this a real, genuine gunning for the South African market, which, to, to both the points you guys have made, seems to be on lockdown unless um, you do a number of things, including you know secure like fundamentally more favorable rights to to content than other people, or ha- make local content that just blows everyone else out of the water, which I don't see right now Quest in the position to do. Downhill from here in terms of our news, because we're sliding into territory that I know you'll find super familiar, uh, Simon. So a couple of episodes ago, Musa bragged on the show like how well his little Bitcoin portfolio was doing. Uh, he's got this fabulous... <laughs> Tell us how much again you have this fabulous little portfolio on Lu- on Luno. Yeah, it's got it's got up. I've invested more actually, so now it's just just under one Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, so now I'm properly jealous because at the time it was like a hundred. Was it a hundred dollars or even a hundred rand? It was a hundred rand at the time, but now you know, and I'm invested. Yeah. I saw it perform. <laughs> okay, cool. So yeah, so it's not it's officially not pathetic anymore. Um, I I went so after that peer pressure and everything. I, I I caved and I, I went on 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 Luno and and I applied for a Bitcoin wallet and and they took seven years to respond. I'm joking. They took a while apparently because I'm not a South African citizen and they had to check me out. I don't know. Maybe they called my mother. I don't know what they did. But anyway, they come back with me. They come back to me and they say, "Wonderful, open your wallet." I haven't done it since. Um, I wish I had. I'd probably be significantly richer than when I first <laughs> applied. Nevertheless, since then, even they they've basically taken on a significant amount of investment not least from south africa's very own alpha code which of course is uh, part of the rand merchant investment group that was really interesting how do you go about rating one sort of platform in this genre from another simon so i mean there's luna out here there's like bitpesa you could probably name a dozen others what makes this one so much better or worth the money they got i suppose uh, fundamentally the team um the timing that they hit the market at. And then, you know, anytime we're talking about finances, whether it's Bitcoin or in, in conventional fintech, it comes down to trust. You know, Luno's been doing this. They were, they're one of the oldest exchanges in the world, actually. Um, they've never had a hack. They've never had a breach. They've never lost customers' funds. Um, nobody's ever had a problem getting their money out of Luno. Um, and you have to think about that. Uh, you know, when there's a craze, when there's a hype, like we currently have in the cryptocurrency market, you know, I had somebody who's a, he's a seasoned technologist, you know, this, this guy has like led big multinationals and he phoned me and he's like, yo, I just found this site. Is it legit? I just put like 50 K into it. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> I've never heard of these guys. Right. It's like, who are you giving your money to? Um, so you need to be careful. And I think Luno's done well because they, you know, they, they do right by the regulators. Um, they, all of their staff are AML trained, uh, which is anti-money laundering, um, they they go to a lot of effort, as you've experienced, to know their clients, make sure that uh, there's nothing dodgy happening on the platform. So that trust gets you a long way. They're a professional outfit and they've got a solid team. 
Uh, it's a great business. And of course, uh, I have to mention that I used to work at Luno, so I'm a bit biased. You did? Look, I didn't know that when I asked the question or even lined this, this topic up. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 been, uh, it's been amazing watching from the sidelines. When I joined Luno, I think there were five guys in Stellenbosch working out of the Fire ID offices. And they had a, an exchange with an HTML front end, and that was pretty much it. But awesome teams, some of the best minds in the industry globally, frankly. Um, I got involved back then, and I left when um, just before they did their first big Series A uh, funding, which I think was $5 million. I exited the business just before that. Um, and it's just been great from the sidelines watching Marcus Swanepoel, who's the CEO, Timothy Stranix, who's co-founder and CTO, and just an incredible computer scientist. Um, just watching that team grow. I don't know how many people they've got now. It feels like 40 or 50 globally. But um, it's a solid business, and uh, and it's uh, I'm glad they're doing so well. And so how much of what Simon said did you know when you chose Luno, you know, ahead of all sorts of other things out there, Musa? Very little. Actually, probably none. Um, I'm, I'm trying to reflect now. Why did I go with Luno? I did a bit of research, and they seemed to be the most accessible, number one. Um, with the least kind of um, <laughs> what's the right? criminess, yeah, like there's an element of you doing the right thing. You've, you're going with these guys, right? The other guys just seem like they could have made a head for the hills and you know gone with your money. Um, and I think I got one or two references in the industry that said these guys are doing a pretty good job. So I agree from a trust perspective. They've spent a lot of time and energy building that. Um, I also think you know the interface as far as the user experience and how they've kind of built trust into the UX and the journey that you go to. I think that's that's great. Um, but yeah, that, those are kind of the variables. But I knew very little, um, quite frankly, when I, when, I, when I went looking for them. And so what do you reckon all that money is for? Because, again, explain to those of us who, you know, as simply as you can, like those of us who don't understand the intricacies of growing out this idea that they, they've built here, which is essentially a, a cryptocurrency exchange. So, uh, I mean... As with any business, your biggest overhead is salaries. Uh, you know, a, a software engineer earns anything between you know eighty and two hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> and uh, at a company the size of Luno, you you need a small army of software engineers. You need product managers that are earning you know about the same if they if they're the best at what they do. Um, so salary is always your biggest overhead. You're also working in a new industry and you're figuring out things and you're experimenting and uh, your runway you know is is five to ten years probably. Uh, so, uh, so you put that all together and, uh, $9 million, which is what they raised for a series B seems, uh, did I say, is it 9 million? Well, 14 in total. 14. Uh, yeah. So the first raise was led by NASPASS, uh, and that was $5 million. Uh, the second series B, um, of course there was a whole collection of investors and you mentioned Alpha Co being one of them. That was $9 million. If you compare that to the kind of raises in Silicon Valley, it's actually quite conservative. And if you look at where Luno is headed, they've just launched in Europe, for example. Um, they, they, they're competing on the global stage with companies like Coinbase, you know, that's raised in excess of $150 million. So, um, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're, they're actually lean and mean if you think about it. Perfect uh, springboard into talking about Bitcoin in general. I know we've got a little time left uh, not too much time left to do that but um uh recently headline grabbing in south africa has been uh, pick and pay because apparently uh one of the places you can now spend your fortune uh, <laughs> musa your bitcoin fortune is pick and pay as it happens um and yeah you know it's, it's, it just took you know it was being covered everywhere and and i look for context pick and pay seems to be positioning in south africa as you know they're going from one of the, the country's biggest sort of supermarket groups to i guess uh, aspirationally a sort of forward-thinking fintech you know player that kind of vibe it, it appears that's the aspiration here uh, and it's, it's definitely a time they need to be figuring out what else they can do because their core business is obviously under a, a significant amount of stress but um how excited should we be when you know br brands as big as as pick and pay in the south african context are seemingly embracing bitcoin even if it might be a trial or whatever it is how excited simon's like shaking his head and yeah he's already <laughs> i mean it's it's the story was blown out of proportion in fact i'd go so far as to say that 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 all pick and pay really wanted to do get from this was pr and they did <laughs> like they piloted it at one store i mean Flip. one store yeah one store in in the cape as far as i know it uh it got blown out of proportion 
Um, look, I commend them for thinking about it, for trying it. Um, but, you know, call me back when you've got it rolled out nationally in all of your your, your points of sales. It's, it's a non-event. I'm sure they're also trialing, you know, uh, new stickers to put prices on apples. Who cares, right? It's, it's not being rolled out. So it's just put it on the list of experiments that big groups do. I don't think there's a big retail in the world right now who – if they're not, if if they aren't at least thinking about Bitcoin, they at least have one person in an office somewhere doing something about it and are probably piloting it. Um, the bigger stories are the ones that are missed. You know, Payfast uh, has Bitcoin integration. You can go into Takealot right now, Takealot.com, and you can shop with Bitcoin. That's exponentially bigger than the pick and pay story. Um, okay, it's hidden away. You have to click on EFT, and then like Bitcoin is hidden away as one of the options. I don't think Takealot even knows it's there because they just got it for free with Payfast, but um, I did actually notice it because my wife and I run a, a, a gourmet grape juice brand, and uh, I don't know why it factored into our thinking at the time in terms of like what, going with PayFast as opposed to other things. I think generally speaking, at the time, the options we were considering PayFast just had uh, more sort of options in terms of how people could pay or how we could receive payment from people, including Bitcoin. But you're right; like that never made the news. Certainly didn't make it onto our show. Yeah, it's. Uh... Again, like, I, you know, I don't want to be the cynic. I'm glad Pick and Pay are thinking this way. But the reality is also... Why are you toning it down, though? Like, you're almost, <laughs> you're almost apologetic. I'm not saying... And I'm not saying that we should just out and out just well, try and gun for people. But I guess what you're trying to be is constructively critical? Well, I, I, it's exciting to, to think that Pick and Pay could do this nationally one day. But the reality is that is that they won't because Bitcoin just isn't being used for payments right now. Uh, you know, people are holding Bitcoin as an investment. They're hoping to get rich like our friend Musa over here. Um, and and they aren't spending it. They don't want to spend it. When they get Bitcoin, they want to hold on to it. That's, we've, we're still very much in the store of value phase with Bitcoin. Um, so if you're a pick and pay and you look at the cost and, and, and the risk of rolling out Bitcoin nationally, uh, just so that it can be a fraction of your payments, because I can guarantee you it will be. Uh, you know, Bitcoin just isn't there yet. So uh, it's going to be a while before we see Bitcoin payments on a day-to-day -day basis um, being any meaningful percentage of the amount of transactions being done in the world. Okay, so help me as the last thing we discussed today in terms of like separating hype from reality within the African context, within our context. Um, I mean, I had a chat with a higher up at the Internet Society last week. Uh, we're just over 20% in terms of internet penetration. Um we know that like financial inclusion isn't actually a thing yet, despite like gains we're seeing and all sorts of things, and despite how excited we become for fintech, um, you know what what Paga is doing in 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 Nigeria, bringing the best of mobile money together with 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 legacy plays and banking and all the rest of it. Great, you know we we plug it and we celebrate it, but let's face it, right? Not enough Africans are on the internet to start with. Uh, even fewer of them are banked. And perhaps in any position whatsoever to take full advantage of, you know, this Bitcoin wave, as it were. With that as a setup, what should we be excited about? What should we dis dismiss as hype in our context? Yeah, I mean, the idea that that uh, cryptocurrencies are the great savior of the unbanked is uh, is it's an it's exciting. Uh, you mentioned some of the challenges. Uh, there are ways to do. Bitcoin, for example, over USSD. So, you know, you don't have to have smartphone penetration. You don't necessarily even need to have broadband. Um, so I, I'm still, you know, I'm massively optimistic about the promise that cryptocurrencies hold for the African continent, especially things like Monero uh, and Zcash, where the fungibility is slightly better than Bitcoin. And it's, it's, it's more plausible that it would be used in day-to-day -day transactions in retail, for example. And also the inclusiveness of the network, you know, Blockchain doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care what your balance is. It doesn't care the size of your transaction. Of course, there are mining fees and other considerations and scaling issues, but we'll get past those. Ultimately, this is the way money will work in the future, and it will change the lives of everybody, You know, whether you're a lower-class person living in a developing country or whether you're rich. Um, so so I, I buy the promise, but I think as a technologist, I've seen this a hundred times before. There's that Bill Gates quote, or it gets attributed to Bill Gates. We don't know if he really said it. It's like Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet, right? Um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> that is a good one. Okay, I hadn't heard that one. But, but uh, this 
this quote that gets attributed to Bill Gates is, we always overestimate the change that will happen in two years and underestimate the change that will actually occur in 10. So now we're in the midst of the hype and cryptocurrency is a thing and the world's going crazy. Um, but realistically, we're 10 years away from seeing what this really means. Um, it's not going to be overnight. It's not going to disrupt central banking in the next decade necessarily. Um, it's already started doing it, but we've got a long way to go. So I think one always has to kind of temper the hype with a little bit of reality around how long it actually takes us to imbibe new technology. The internet's like three decades old, depending on when you start to choose to start counting, and less than half of the world uses it. Um, and we're only now starting to figure out what it's good for. So we're just getting started with Bitcoin. And I think anybody who tells you that they know where it's going is uh, needs a, a dose of uh, calm down. So, so I got a couple of friends in the valley, and they they speak about it being just a bubble that's going to burst. And I, I, I've I've got a conflicting view in the sense that I think a component of the the, the cryptocurrency app is a bubble, but ultimately you can't undo the infrastructure, you can't undo the network, you can't undo all the stuff that is going in to be able to enable the ecosystem. Right? Maybe the bubble may relate to the kind of gains and returns that you'll see in the short term, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you throw everything the baby out of the bathwater. Do you have a, do you have a similar view, or what do you think? Kind of. I mean, you can't, we talk about cryptocurrency as if it's all the same thing. And right now, the hype is being led by these ICOs, initial coin offerings, companies issuing tokens on the Ethereum blockchain and selling them on the open market uh, as a form of security, or they try and sell it as a protocol or whatever. The point is, that's very different from Bitcoin. If you look at like, you know, Gnosis or ONG tokens, or you can't compare them to Bitcoin or Ethereum or Monero, and you can't compare those things to each other either. They're all very different. Yes, they all use blockchain technology and cryptography, etc. But the economics of those networks are all different. They're designed with, for different purposes. So where's the bubble? Definitely in ICOs. Does that mean in Bitcoin? Maybe. I also buy into the thinking that says all money is a bubble that just hasn't popped yet, right? Just ask the Americans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes down to a fundamental misunderstanding of money and how it works. The fact that we're in the midst of a currency war that's been raging, raging since 2008. Central banks have just been printing more and more money for quantitative easing. You know, it's a massive discussion. Um, but but let's say it is a bubble. Let's say the prices are inflated way beyond where they should be. And let's say that bubble pops. So what? Bitcoin can lose 90% of its value tomorrow and still be worth almost double what it was three years ago. You know, it's not going to go away. Uh, so, yeah, people will lose money. The price may deflate. I happen to think its growth graph looks like a sawtooth. So we'll always see dips, but the recovery will always take us past the previous peak. Um, but, you know, this all of this talk about bubble, bubbles, I think, is a little bit lazy. What's lazier is comparing it to previous bubbles. People talk about the dot-com bubble burst. This is nothing like the nascent dot-com industry. People talk about the tulip mania in, what was it, 17th century Holland. Like, what, the, what are you smoking? It's not or like comparisons with, with like commodities like gold, which I also think is like missing the point entirely. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, certainly there are fundamentals of human psychology and behavioral economics and etc. I get it. Um, but really, we're doing disservice to a technology that is is the most promising thing that's come along since the internet itself in terms of changing society for the better. Whoa, that's big. Bigger than, say, everything? Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. What's more important than money in terms of how society works, right? There's only one thing, and that's language. If you look at our evolution as a species, you know, language and money are the two things we use to make society work, to make civilization work. Um, and Bitcoin challenges things on such a deep level. It challenges the idea of the nation state, um, you know, in its end game. Is, is borders are imaginary things we've made up. Do we still need them? Do we still need separate governments across the world? Um, you know, why do we have different currencies from one country to another? Is that a good idea? What is this fractional reserve banking system that revolves around central banks? Is it good for us? Does it still serve us well? Um, if we're going to move into a world where we're automating every job possible, where youth unemployment in South Africa is upwards of 50%, and every job that's created every year is happening while five jobs are being taken away, like, what are we going to do here, guys? The word salary is something that's becoming meaningless. To more than half of, of, of Africans, a salary isn't something you get. So what do we do with these people? 
you know. Um, so universal basic income becomes pertinent. And that's a, one of the projects I'm involved with. It's the only one I'll talk about publicly is Project Ubu that's looking at universal basic income. But but we need to think about these things, guys. We're not creating more jobs, right? The world is changing. Uh, look at what's happening. We're seeing the end game of identity politics and you know the Trumps and the Kim Jong-uns of the world showing us exactly how badly they can fuck up when they apply themselves. Like things need to change and and what changes it is language, the narrative, our ability to spread the news, believe the news, how we how we source truth and money, which is 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 how the power flows. It's time for that system to be disintermediated because it's not working for billions of people right now. We are legion. As I was speaking, I was just waiting for like, you know, that sniper dot, like a red sniper dot to like a, to materialize on Simon's forehead and just take him out while he's on the mic. No, I mean, interesting issues. Like, guys, listen, um, it's been a pleasure. What do you make of some of Simon's assertions? Uh, Musa made some points about his, uh, his grind with this so-called bubble that's bursting. Is there something to that? Do you have any views that contradict anything we've said today about any of these stories? Come on, give us a shout. At African Roundup on Twitter and Instagram. Give us a shout on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. And of course, drop us those emails. Hello at African Tech Roundup. Otherwise, one last time, I need to let you know to watch this space on the next podcast post because we have some important announcements about some exciting things that we think are going to add value to the way you access insight and value within our African tech ecosystem. We'll be telling you all about that next week. Otherwise, big thank you so much to uh, our guest here today, Simon the Man Dingle. Thank you so much for being here. Go ahead and follow him at Simon Dingle on Twitter. Um, you will stay quite informed as well as entertained. Go ahead and do that. Thanks for coming, Simon. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on the show, man. Musa Kalenga. Another one, brah. The boots. <laughs> I love that. It's going to stick. Thank you very much, Andile. All is good fun. All is good Africa. We'll see you soon. See you soon indeed. In the meantime, I'm still Andile Masugo. Take it easy, Africa. <laughs>